Thanks, Andrew. Uh, keep that open in front of you, uh, as well as keep the warning that Andrew gave you in your minds. Uh, the reason we want the Bibles out in front of you is so that you can be testing what is said from up the front um, to see that it aligns with what God's Word says. That's what we strive to do here at the CU. Uh, His is the authority, not man's. Um, so with that in mind, let me start by asking you a question. How close are you to God? don't know whether you've ever been asked that question. don't know whether you've asked yourself that question. How close are you to God? Uh, I think you could give a whole bunch of answers to this. Uh, and if you're living in the West like we are, I think typically we'll give them along subjective lines. I feel close to God when I'm doing okay in life. My emotional mood is, is peppy and high. When circumstances in my life are going well. Um, when the things that I want are happening. Uh, when I'm not sinning. When I'm doing things that I think that pleases God. That's when I feel close to God. But I feel distant from God uh, when those things aren't happening. So my circumstances have just been shot through and are in pieces at the floor. Um, I've started doing things that are kind of, I I know aren't pleasing to God. And so therefore, um, I I, I feel a distance and I'll keep that distance there until I start to behave the way I think I should be. And then I'll feel close to him again. Or I'll feel close to God when things are going right, because I know that that's when he's looking down on me Uh, with smiles and love. Uh, That's one way you can answer the question, how close am I to God? Uh, But there are other ways to answer the question too, and and they exist in our society as well. One of them might be geographical, spatial. I feel close to God when I am in a particular location. It might be in creation on the peak of a mountain, or it might be in a church building or a, a particular holy site somewhere in the world. Uh, It might be temporal in time. I feel close to God during different seasons, uh, like at Christmas or at particular festivals and those sorts of things. Um, It might even be not spatial, temporal, but but kind of cultural. Like I'm close to God because I am connected to a particular person, friendship, family, um, or a particular ethnicity or people group. Um, But however you answer that question, you can go along it a whole bunch of different ways But the one thing that we can be certain of from today's passage is that if you were one of the Ephesians, you would not have any doubt in your mind as you answered this question. You would have answered, no, I am not close to God. I've never been close to God and I never will be. Now, last week in chapter two, we saw that the major obstacle facing all of humanity was our sin. When we sin, our sin kills us and we need God to raise us from death to life if we're to have fellowship with him. But the Ephesians, we discovered today, have another obstacle. They were Gentiles. Now, what's a Gentile? Well, a Gentile is, by definition, somebody who is not a Jew. It's the everyone else category. Um, so let's have a look here. This is um, God's world map. Uh, and he basically has two kind of divisions of humanity here. The, the first is the nation of Israel there in the red. That's God's chosen people. And then there's everybody else. The Gentiles, which the Bible refers to collectively as the nations. And those two divisions of humanity is how God views the world. Uh, And the thing to get about that division is it's not primarily cultural, not even political. It's spiritual. And that has some implications if you're a Jew, uh, if you're a Gentile. So have a look at verse 11, which is the beginning of our passage today. This is what Paul's assessment is of the Gentile situation. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. 
excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. And so we see there that to be a Gentile, spiritually speaking, was to be hopeless because you weren't a part of God's people. And so you didn't have the things that would give you access to God, like the Christ, like the citizenship, like the covenants. And so because of that, that left you in a bit of a spot of bother. And that's all this happened is because that he, God has made a commitment to the people of Israel that he hasn't made to any other nation. He has established a special relationship with them. Uh, and that's the relationship that he shares with them and with no one else. Now, I want to be clear here. God isn't being a racist. He's not kind of saying at this point that one race is better than any other race. And we know this because of what he says around the time that he makes that relationship with Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is the kind of the recount of what Moses says to them as they're about to enter the promised land. Uh, And he says this, Israel, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he redeemed you from the land of slavery. As we look at that verse, what it tells us is that there is nothing special about the Israelite nation. Nothing in them that God should choose them over anyone else. In fact, if you look at it carefully, what's the reason that he gives for loving them? He only gives one, and it's purely because he chose to do so. Particularly when he made the promise to their ancestors. It was a free choice that, as far as we can tell, was motivated by nothing within them. And so what God is not doing here is he's not introducing some sort of master race. There is no race or ethnicity that is better than any other. There's no inherent difference But even so, what it does mean is that if you're not a part of Israel, then you don't have access to God. And we see that in the way that the passage describes the Ephesian Gentile predicament, right? He uses spatial language. The Gentiles, they're separate. They're far away. There's a barrier. There's a wall. And he also uses relational language as you look at the passage. They're separate. They're excluded. There's hostility. They're foreigners and strangers. Because that's what it was to be a Gentile in God's world. It was to be cut off from God. Now take a moment to dwell on that for a second. Because here in Australia, almost everybody in this room is a Gentile, by definition. Unless you have some sort of Jewish descent or ethnicity, this is you. And I don't know how you therefore answered the question before, how close are you to God? But what this is telling you is that your situation is exactly the same as the Ephesian situation, which is hopeless with a capital H. There is a great chasm between you and God, one which you have no earthly reason to expect that God will fill or cross. He has made no commitment to you. He doesn't have to save you. He's made no promise to you like he's made to the Israelites. You've got nothing. And that is deeply terrifying. Now, one of the implications of this division of humanity between Jew and Gentile was that a deep-seated hostility arose between the two people groups. And it's a hostility that Paul tells us here in verse 14 and 15 of our passage, centred on the law. And so that barrier has actually got a focal point. Now, the law was a contract. It was the contract that established and maintained the relationship between Israel and God. And it kind of functioned as God's special revelation to his people. It gave them instructions on how to live. And so it became one of the key characteristics that distinguished them from everyone else. And so, for example, again, from the book of Deuteronomy, uh, this is what Moses says to them. 
What other nation, there's the comparison and the key phrase, is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? And the difference, the greatness of receiving the law and what it meant for their nation is not the difference, say, between Australian law and American law. I know that there are some differences. I don't pretend to know anything about them. I just keep watching West Wing and a whole bunch of things from the States, still trying to work out what the Seventh Court of Appeals is. Like, this is a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't make any sense and I know doesn't happen in Australia. But that's not the sort of difference we're talking about here when it comes to Jewish law versus everything else. This law distinguished them on every possible metric, culturally, visually, relationally. They ate different things. They wore different things. Their sexual ethics was completely different from the rest of the world. Their mode of worship was completely different from the rest of the world. And so it's almost like you know, going down Broadway over there uh, in your car, kind of cruising along at 30 k's an hour, and you kind of pull alongside an Amish person in a horse and cart. Right? You don't see that every day. You don't see that very often at all in Australia, actually, because they're kind of mainly based in America. But it's that sort of difference. Like the gears grind, not literally, but kind of culturally, as you kind of come alongside them and go, you are not from around here. The difference screams out at you. It's palpable. And that's what it was to be a Jew with the law. And what Paul says here in verse 14 is that it becomes a barrier between the two groups of people, a dividing wall of hostility. And does anyone know what this is up on the screen? It, it's the Berlin Wall. So this is before your time, technically before my time. It got torn down in the first year of my life, so you know I was there to see it. Um, and, and, and what happened was that at a certain point in, in Germany, uh, with communist uh, Russia and all that sort of stuff, and, and the democratic West, something came to a head in 1961, and they needed to divide the city of Berlin and stop the people from East Berlin migrating over to West Berlin, where the free democratic West of wonderfulness was, right? Not make any political statements, but that's just what happens. They built this wall so that the East couldn't get to the West. And this thing divided the people of Berlin. And for the people, particularly on the East, it would have been a daily reminder that they could not escape the position that they found themselves in. And so it would have become a focal point, a point of tension and hostility, and what Paul is saying is that the law was the Berlin Wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. You see, the Jews, they knew that they were on the right side of the wall and they looked down on the Gentiles who were on the wrong side of the wall. And obviously the Gentiles over here were so resentful of the Jews and the way that they were treated, not just because of their privileged position, but because of how they flaunted it, that, that, that this kind of, kind of loggerhead kind of tension, this hostility emerged now, neither group was justified in how they treated each other, but the key point in all of this is that it was the possession of the law that caused it all. And regardless of how people felt about that on either side of the wall, one thing was undeniably true. The Gentiles were on the wrong side. There was a wall, and they could not get through it. Now, I don't know, have you ever felt that before, that kind of sense of frustrated exclusion? where you wanted to be a part of something, but you just couldn't do it. I think we feel this socially all the time, right? There's a group of people that you really like, that you think if you, know, you could kind of get with, you'd really resonate and have a lot of fun, and you really want to hang out with them, but you can never seem to get in. They kind of shut you down or, or, or whatever, and who knows what it is. Maybe, maybe you don't have the right skills or the right fashion sense, or maybe the timing was just wrong, and they've kind of reached capacity, and they've kind of reached the magic number eight, and I can't have a ninth person because that, that doesn't work. But, but whatever it is, that, that feeling of exclusion that you can't do anything about. Now take that feeling 
and apply it to your eternal future. See, it's hard, but you can live without certain friends. But when you have that same problem of exclusion with the God who determines your destiny, then it takes on a level of existential angst and anxiety and dread and helplessness that can very easily overwhelm you. And people throughout history have carried this and have been unable to do anything about this. And it's not until you can appreciate that dread, at least empathetically, but particularly personally, it's not until you can hold that dread in your own heart that you can appreciate just what verse 13 means. Because Paul turns around and he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. You see, Jesus comes, sent by God, and he reverses the situation. Where there was hostility, he now brings peace and reconciliation. And we're told how he does that in verse 14. He destroys the barrier. He takes out that dividing wall of hostility and he sets aside in his flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. And that phrase sets aside, it means nullify. It means no longer binding or no longer in effect. And so, you know, that that kind of picture in the movies where they rip up the contract and suddenly the person is freed. That's what Jesus is doing to the law when he dies on the cross. And as he rips up the law, he removes the reason for the two great segments of humanity to be against each other. Now there's no inside advantage, no distinct group and no reason for the Gentiles to be excluded. That's what Jesus does. But I have a question for you and the question is here on the slide. When Jesus sets aside the law in his flesh, who is he making peace between? I'm going to give you 30 seconds with the person next to you. Skim through verses 14 to 18. When Jesus sets aside the law, who is he making peace with? Alrighty, I think that should be enough to at least get you confused. Um, How did you guys go as you skimmed those verses? Who is Jesus making peace between? I don't know whether you notice, but there are actually two hostilities in this passage, isn't there? The first is between the Jew and the Gentile, but there's a second. And the second is between God and man, humanity. And we get a sense of that in verse 16, because both of them, both Jew and Gentile, need to be reconciled to God. And so what we see here is that there are two reconciliations, two pieces that are needed. And we see in verse 15 and 16 that when Jesus sets aside the law, he achieves both of them. So have a look at verse 15. This is Jesus' twofold purpose in setting aside the law. It says that his purpose was, one, to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And then two, in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death the hostility. And that tells us something about not just what causes the hostility between Jew and Gentile, but what causes the hostility between God and man? And unsurprising, well, it is surprising, actually. Surprisingly, it's the same thing. It's the law. So here's a second barrier that puts the Jew um, uh, kind of uh, denied access with God. And it's the same thing. So the law that separates the Jew from the Gentile, that gives them the inside edge, it's actually the same law that prevents them from gaining access to God. Now, you want to ask then at that point, why is that the case? Well, it's because they can't keep the law. You see, the law, it revealed God's requirements, his commands and his regulations, but it also revealed to them that they couldn't meet them. And so even though they are near, they're not there. And so there's still a distance. 
Now, I don't know whether you knew this about the Berlin Wall. I didn't until I did the research this week. It actually went all the way around West Berlin. I thought it was just like one wall and it kind of stopped them from going across each other. But the East actually came around and we said, you know what, we're just going to trap all of the West in. And the only way they could get out to the Democratic West was by flying out. And so the wall became a cage. And that's what the law became for the Jews. The barrier that separated them from the Gentiles was also the barrier that now separated them from God. And so what happens is that on the cross, in his flesh, by his death, those are the phrases that we see in the passage, Jesus comes along and he destroys the barrier of the law, removes Jewish advantage, Gentile exclusion, and in doing so, he takes the two broken halves of humanity and creates in himself one new unified humanity. That's the first piece, but but it doesn't stop there because in doing that, He then takes the new humanity that he's created in himself and in his body on the cross, he reconciles them both to God. And he puts to death the hostility between man and God and achieves for us the second peace. And that's why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, just in case you were wondering. It's not because he had some sort of transcendent calm and kind of wandered around with a a juice and a toga on. It's because whatever is broken in the world, wherever there is a relational breakdown, wherever there's disunity, particularly between God and his creation, wherever the cracks are, he comes along and he heals them. Verse 17, he came and he preached peace to you who are far away, peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, can you imagine what hearing that would be like for somebody like the people Paul's writing to? Here are some Ephesians, once far off, distant and hostile, spiritually dead, and Christ has now brought them near and made peace for them. The uncrossable chasm Christ has crossed, the unbreakable wall Christ has broken. And it's not just access to God either. Have a look at verse 19. Look at the reversal of fortune God extends to them, the spiritually unfavored. It says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, to put that into perspective, the Jewish temple had a series kind of expanding zones or areas. And the closer that you got to the center, the fewer the people were that could enter it. See, the Gentiles couldn't even go into the temple. They had the court of the Gentiles, and that was sort of outside. Uh, But as you kind of go to the center, at the very center is a place called the Most Holy Place, the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's presence dwelt, and only one person could ever go in there. It was the high priest, and he could only ever go in there once a year, and it was only because he had a job to do, and he had to do it by shedding blood. That was the only way he could access and get in there. So you can imagine that. It's not swipe card access. You've actually got to kill something to get inside the door. That's how extreme access to God was. And what Paul is saying here, it's not just that you now have access to God, Gentile Ephesian believers. You don't just have access to God at the most central place, but you are now being built into part of the temple in which he dwells. You can't get closer to a wall than being the wall itself, right? And so for somebody who has a profound and right sense of their ungodliness and their unworthiness before God, 
to hear such a thing and to be told that it is guaranteed because what Christ has already done in removing the law, such a thing would be unbelievable. And yet that is what Christ, the peacemaker, has done. Now, because it's so unbelievable, we need a little help from God to actually let it sink deep into our hearts, to grow us in appreciation and understanding. And it's why in chapter 3, Paul makes a move to pray that God would do just that in their hearts. But he gets sidetracked. And you see it in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Hang on a minute, I've just realized something. And we know that he's about to pray for them because if you look at chapter 3, verse 14, we see the same phrase, for this reason, and he goes on to pray. But something stops him in verse 1. Something that he says that makes him realize, hang on a minute, you're missing a piece of the puzzle that if you don't have, you might not understand what's going on here. Now, what does he do? He calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And he realizes that, hang on, I've just told them that I'm suffering for them on their behalf, and that might discourage them, uh, so I need to tell them why this is happening. Uh, and so what does he do? He goes on a 13-verse tangent uh, to describe to us just what it is uh, that they need to know. So just like Paul, we're going to do the same. So you ready for the talk within the talk? Uh, because that's how it's going to roll. Uh, and here's what he says to them. He basically says, the thing that you don't know, or that you may not know, that you need to know is this. I, Paul have been chosen by God to be the custodian of the mystery of Christ. Think about that as a name badge at your workplace. Custodian of the mystery of Christ. Well, what is the mystery? Well, we see it there in verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. In one sense, it doesn't tell us anything that we haven't already been told at the end of chapter 2, right? This is what Paul has been telling them. Ephesians, Gentiles, you who are far away, you have now been brought near and given access to God. Those spiritual promises granted to the nation of Israel, you share in them as well. And the reason it's called a mystery is because it wasn't known beforehand. Nobody knew this. Nobody expected this. Everyone thought that if you're a Gentile, you're far away, and that was the done deal. It wasn't expected. But here is God's great reveal. The mystery has been made known. And the person through whom he does that is Paul. He tells us in verse 7 that God chose him to be the one through whom the mystery comes. And so as a result of that, he has two roles in his mind, two purposes. The first is in verse 8. He says that his purpose is to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And that's what he's been doing in all of this letter, hasn't he? He's been telling them what these riches are. But the second purpose, and this is the one that I think we need to pay attention to today, is in the next verse, in verse 9. He says that it's to make plain to everyone, not just the Gentiles, but the whole world, the administration of this mystery. In other words, the plan of this mystery, the purpose, the end game of this mystery. And we see the end game in the next verse, verse 10. God's intent was that now, through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think the easiest way to think about this is that God is showing his winning hand. Now, you, know, you know how you're playing Uno? You know, uh, we've all been here. And you realize all of a sudden that you've won the game because your hand is filled with draw fours. And, and you just happen to accidentally flash your hand to the rest of the players. I know that you've done this. Uh, just to signal to them that, by the way, guys, I've got this. You're all sunk. 
shows it for everybody to see, uh, and they know that they are then at that point stuffed. Well, that is what God is doing here. He's revealing something. Uh, And he's not revealing it to us here on earth, but to those in heaven, in the spiritual realms, to the rulers and the authorities, both good and evil. Although I suspect, given what we saw last week with the prince of the power of the air working, the sons of disobedience, he's showing it to all of the spiritual players in rebellion to him. That here is the thing that I have done that wins the game. He's revealing to them his wisdom. This is his power play. That move of such brilliance, so strategic, so unexpected that all the other players, they can just look on and go, well played, sir, well played. And what's the move? Well, have a look at the passage. What's the move? It's the creation of his church through the church. God takes the hostile elements of humanity, the near and the far, the holy and the unholy, and he makes them one. He makes them into his church. A multiracial, multilingual, diverse unity of saved sinners united under Jesus. And by doing that, he reveals the brilliance and the wisdom of what he's doing in the world. Because here in the most hostile and unlikely of places, he has planted the seed from which he will reconcile all of creation. Not just the things on earth, but the heavenly and the spiritual as well as he brings it all back to himself. And it's worthwhile then stopping and thinking about that. Because I think that when we look on the church, we look on it with human eyes. It's either very small and unimpressive, or we get allured by the things that look impressive but actually aren't. Uh, We look at churches and we think they're impressive when they're big, when they're professional, when they've got good preaching, when they've got t-shirts and volunteer lanyards. We have t-shirts, not volunteer lanyards, we're not that impressive yet. But, But what makes the church, what makes the CU impressive is not its outward trappings. What makes a church impressive is the fact that it exists. Let me say that again. What makes the church impressive is the fact that it exists. That's what Paul is saying. So I want to challenge you, the next time you get the opportunity, to go to an 8 a.m. church service. You'll probably kind of rock up in this old building. You'll probably find 10 old people gathered around a prayer book. Half of them are asleep. And as you walk in, as you look at that kind of sad, kind of depressing picture... What Paul is saying to you is that those people, if they're believers in the Lord Jesus, they have been united by Christ into one new humanity. And that is the most astounding display of wisdom you will ever see. And we can see lots of really impressive displays of cleverness, of wisdom. But that's the one that Paul says is the one that blows them all out of the water. Not because it looks a certain way but simply because Christ created it. And so Paul says to the Ephesians, don't worry about me. As I preach the gospel, God's plan is unfolding, not just in your lives as you receive Jesus in faith, but it's being declared across all ends of the creation and revealing to the heavenly realms just what it is, God's wisdom, just how it is that he is reconciling the world to himself. So there's the talk within the talk. Now, appreciating that I think is helpful because it kind of raises the stakes again for us because it's hard to see that, isn't it? It's hard to grasp just what it is that God has done in Christ and in his people. And so because of that, Paul moves to pray for us. It's hard to understand the distance. It's hard not to take for granted what some of us who have been Christians for a number of years uh, would just kind of go, well, this is just just how it is. We kind of forget that Christ had to bring us near in the first place. 
And so Paul prays for two things that the Ephesians and therefore us would know. The first is in verse 16 and 17. He prays that out of his glorious riches, God might strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That might sound like a bit of an odd prayer request uh, because the Ephesians have already put their faith in Jesus, right? He he already dwells in their heart by his spirit. We've seen that in chapter one. Uh, They've been given the down payment of the spirit, guaranteeing their inheritance. So so that's sort of done. So, So why is Paul praying for this? Is he implying that you can somehow lose Christ, so you just kind of spiritually chain him down so he, so he can't escape? Uh, that's not what's happening here. I think what Paul is praying for is a continued dwelling. Think of it as like a settling in. Uh, it's almost like the difference between somebody who's just moved into an apartment uh, versus somebody who's been living there for 15 years. Um, and, and, you know, you kind of like, it's obviously kind of like, oh, you've still got boxes that haven't been unpacked and oh, that furniture doesn't match. And whereas somebody who's 15 years in, it's like, oh, wow, you really need to do the, the dishes. And, and like, it's cozy, right? Uh, and, and what Paul wants is for Christ to get cozy in our hearts, to put his stuff down, to unpack his boxes, to put his posters up on the wall, move in his furniture and arrange things in the way that he wants them arranged. Because he wants the Ephesians to become so utterly Christ-like in their thinking and their behaviour. What he wants is that Christ will dwell in their hearts through faith. So that's not all he prays for. The second thing that he prays for is in verse 17. He prays that they might grasp Christ's love for them. He says, verse 17, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how high, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And I want to call this Paul's impossible prayer because do you notice what he prays for? He prays that we might know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. It's a paradox, right? How is that possible? Well, I think some people, they come along and they take the phrase surpass knowledge and they claim that what Paul is talking about here is some sort of subjective mystical experience where you're kind of meditating or you're kind of in nature or whatever. And then all of a sudden, like without any outside intervention, you just you, you, you kind of comprehend suddenly the love of Christ. But that's not what he's talking about here. And we know that's the case because for the last three chapters of his letter, he's been using knowledge to show us the great extent of Christ's love. No, what Paul is saying here is that we will never fully grasp the extent of the love that motivated the salvation that Christ has won for us. It's why he prayed that we'll grasp Christ's love in terms of spatial limits, how wide and long and high and deep. It's why we say when we say to somebody, I love you this much, that what we're not saying is that I love you for approximately two meters. Like, nobody means that when they say that. What are they trying to communicate? Well, maybe one of you does. You need to have a talk with your mum about that and kind of work out. What does it mean when you say that? It means that you are expressing something of the expansive nature of your love. It's a love that knows no bounds. And here's the thing. Even though we may never know Christ's love completely, if we're Christians, we can know it truly and we can know it more deeply. And so what Paul prays is that as Christ moves into our hearts and settles down, we will come to appreciate just how distant from God we were, just how entrenched and severe that hostility was, just how amazing the grace of God was in granting us salvation 
in sending Christ the peacemaker to bring us new. So that we might come to know more fully just how loved in Christ we are. Now, how do we grasp that? How do we grasp the ungraspable? ungraspable? Well, I can't help you do that. I, I can't affect that change in your heart. I can say some things, I can point you to the scriptures. But like, when you think about it, like, how do you communicate? It's so challenging. How do you communicate and lodge into somebody's heart the magnitude of what it is that Christ has done for them? No amount of perfect illustrations, engaging stories, jokes will ever do that. I could give you a thousand Berlin Walls. I could throw in like a, a Great Wall of China as well and then kind of talk about the distance between the Earth and the Moon and all these things to try and get you to grasp conceptually the difference, the distance. But I can't make that real in your heart. Only God can do that by His Spirit. And it's why Paul, in both of his prayer requests, prays that we will have power. Power for Christ to dwell. Power for Christ's love to become intelligible. Because it is beyond our ability to do it ourselves. But here is Paul's confidence, I think, as he prays this. He's not thinking, oh, well, this is a pretty big prayer, so we should pray it just in case God might answer and you know, then, then we'll kind of grow in our appreciation of God's love. His God-given expectation is that God will answer this prayer. Have a look at the last two verses of our passage, verse 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us right now, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, the prayers that Paul prays, this particular prayer, is a certainty because it is aligned with God's purposes in Jesus for his people. And that's that we would know the love of Christ that he has lavished upon us when he brought us our peace at the cross. So let me finish just by saying this. Remember... Remember that at one time you Gentiles were separated from Christ, but in his love he came near and he made you the very dwelling place of God.